So Father, we thank you and we praise you for the display of your mercy through the death of your son who came to this earth and lived the perfectly sinless life that we ourselves could never have lived, who took our place in death and went to the cross that we deserved, who on the third day triumphed over the grave. We praise you for the display of your mercy through your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for the promise of the gospel that we can turn to you. You invite us to turn to you from our sin, to call on the name of Jesus in faith and to receive freely that which cost him everything to give. Father, the miracle of your love, the miracle of your grace, the miracle of your mercy is far more than most of us even know how to begin to imagine. We praise you for making it known to us through Jesus. Father, we turn now to your word and we ask that you would use it to shape us and to mold us, to transform us and to make us more like your son, Jesus. We come to your word recognizing that it is perfect because it comes from you. We come to your word recognizing that every verse, every page, every phrase is profitable and has been given to us that we would know what it means to live holy and blameless before you. Father, we come to your word as the ultimate authority over every sphere of our lives. And we submit to that authority now. So Holy Spirit, have your way in this place today. Father, we ask you now, glorify your name, edify your church, sanctify us in the truth of your word. Your word is truth. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And um, as you find your seats, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Jonah chapter 3 is where we're going to be again today, picking uh, right up in verse 6 where we left off last week. And um, today our time together is going to be a little bit shorter than normal. If you didn't have the chance, um, we did celebrate, uh, by God's grace, three baptisms in between our two morning worship gatherings um, today. And, and it's really fitting because for us, baptism is a picture of turning. Um, those who are professing faith in Jesus Christ are declaring publicly by God's grace that they have turned their backs on their sin. They have turned their backs on their self. They have turned their back on any attempt in and of themselves to earn or inherit salvation of, on their own. They've turned their backs on, on any hope that they could, uh, by any merit of their own, come uh, into favor before a righteous and holy God. Baptism is declaring that the old self has died. It has been buried with Christ through repentance of sin and faith in the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ. We've been raised to new and everlasting life in him. Now, those who are baptized today, they've turned away from their sin to Christ. And in so doing, God has turned away his judgment from them. And it's a really fitting picture for us today that we celebrated baptism because the book of Jonah is in so many ways for us a picture of turning. 
It feels like at every turn of the pages of the book of Jonah, there is some sort of turn that's taking place. So uh, the first turn we see happens when Jonah tries to run the opposite way after God called him to go to Nineveh. So we see the Lord literally physically turn him around and get him to where he desires for him to go. And then we see last week of how Jonah comes preaching this very simple message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will perish because of the rebellion against God. It's a very short sermon in the Hebrew. It was only about five words long, but we know that it was effective nonetheless because uh, the people immediately begin to recognize the depth of their severity and sin. And the mention of 40 days held out hope to them that there was a possibility that God would show them mercy if they would come to them in repentance. So it's just this picture of turning. We see at every page of every line of the book of Jonah a picture of turning. Now, uh, last week in the first five verses of chapter three, we began looking at the gracious gift of bad news. Gracious and bad don't seem to go hand in hand, but what we have seen uh, through the book of Jonah so far is just mercy upon mercy. It is the mercy of God sending a wicked and rebellious people, a prophet, who would call them to repentance. It was the mercy of God calling the prophet to repentance when he himself fell into sin. And it was the mercy of God we saw last week as a neighbor who would come banging on your door to wake you up while you're sleeping because your home is on fire. Jonah comes delivering the gracious gift of bad news, the warning to these people that if they did not turn and repent, that God's judgment would come. So we're going to continue to see uh, really that same thread today. And what we're going to see in verses 6 through 10 is that the Lord mercifully warns us of coming judgment, and he invites us to repent. If there's nothing else you take away from last week and from today, I hope you will at least take away this. The warning of judgment is itself mercy. When Romans 2 tells us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, God's kindness is the forbearance of his wrath against sin. It is God's kindness that he is holding back the fullness of his wrath against sin so that we have the opportunity to repent. And this is important for us to see because as we're going to see in in Jonah chapter 3 today, church, we have a God who not only desires to show us mercy, we have a God who delights to show us mercy. He sends the prophet out of a desire to see the people turn and repent from their sin. He mercifully warns us of coming judgment. And here's the promise that we have. When we turn away from our sin against him, God turns away his judgment against us. The forbearance of judgment and the forbearance of wrath, this is the mercy of God. And in this period of forbearance, he and his grace and his love and his kindness invites us to repent. So let's read again from Jonah chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh. So the, the word, this is the message that Jonah has been preaching. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Again, at the mention of 40 days, going back to the first half of chapter 3, this held out hope to the Ninevites that maybe there was an opportunity that the Lord would turn and relent of the wrath that he was planning to pour out on these people because of their wickedness and their sin. And so in hope of the mercy of God, we see the Ninevites respond in four distinct ways that, that can carry in for us today. So we see first from the Ninevites, the hope of God's mercy will lead us to mourn. The hope of God's mercy will lead us to mourn. 
The message Jonah preached in Nineveh makes it all the way to the king, and the king responds with this extraordinary act of brokenness and humility. Verse 6 says that he traded his royal robes for sackcloth. This, this may surprise you to hear, but sackcloth is a special type of cloth that was used to make sacks. That's all it was, just this very grainy, kind of coarse substance, not at all comfortable. It was typically something that only the poorest of the poor would wear. So he trades his royal robes for sackcloth, and we also see in the same verse, he traded his royal throne to sit in ashes, which is an ultimate act of humiliation. These were acts of lament and sorrow and grief. So from, from the king, this is an extraordinary display of public humility. He lays aside his material wealth in order to admit his spiritual poverty. He's broken before the Lord. This is true and genuine brokenness over sin. Richard Phillips has said of this particular passage, false repentance grieves only over the consequences of sin. People are not sorry that they sinned, but that they got caught. True repentance grieves over the sin itself, but the Ninevites tore their hearts in conviction for their sin and the offense they had given to Jonah's God. There is a major difference, as we've looked at at multiple points throughout the course of this year, between the feeling of sorrow and the action of repentance. These two things are not one and the same. Feeling the sorrow is, is not the same as acting in repentance. So, so a key question that I want to ask us this morning, and I'd really encourage you to write this down and just continue to reflect on this uh, throughout the course of this week. It's a key question for us. When it comes to dealing with sin, are you proactively repentant or reactively sorry? Let me say that one more time. When it comes to dealing with sin, are you proactively repentant or are you reactively sorry? Let, let me ask it a different way. What sins are in your life today that you have absolutely no intention of dealing with unless you get caught? What exists in your heart, what exists in your home, what exists in your life, that if you're just being totally honest, you have absolutely no intention of turning away, you have absolutely no intention of change, absolutely no intention whatsoever of returning to the Lord unless you get caught for where you are. I mean, sure, sure the day we get caught, we'll be sorry. Those will probably be the first two words that come out of our mouths, right? Like, I'm sorry. But sorrow and repentance aren't one and the same. And we see that displayed here in Jonah chapter 3. At Jonah's warning of the coming judgment, the people immediately understood the gravity of their situation. They are crushed under the weight of their sin. The severity of their sin brings them to their knees in desperation. They were not just sorry that they had been caught. They were agonizing over their rebellion. They knew that they deserved to experience the just judgment and punishment of a righteous and holy God. Uh, now, Lord willing, three weeks from today, um, this is going to start the beginning of June and, and carry us through the summer. Lord willing, three weeks from today, um, we're going to be begin studying the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And um, I was reading through this passage this past week and just kind of thinking ahead to that message series. And it, it amazes me, the very first words Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount are words of hope for people who are in desperate spiritual poverty. This is how he begins the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He says, blessed, it's a word that just means happy, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know this phrase, poor in spirit? You know what it means? This phrase, poor in spirit, it is referring to those who are morally and spiritually bankrupt and they know it. These are people who are bankrupt in spirit. That They are in poverty of spirit. They recognize totally and completely without reservation, there is nothing good within me that would earn merit or favor in the eyes of a holy God. I bring nothing good to the table. They, they recognize their own spiritual poverty and, and they know it. And, and it's amazing, in the first few words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus flips the entire religious paradigm on its head. He, he flips the whole system on its head. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What's the promise? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is paradox and promise of the gospel. The only people who can inherit the kingdom are the people who know they don't deserve it. The people in Nineveh, they are poor in spirit. They're bankrupt in spirit. They are in poverty of spirit. They recognize there is absolutely nothing they can bring to the table to earn merit and favor in the eyes of a holy God. And like the people of Nineveh, the recognition of sin in our lives should lead us to a place where we grieve and mourn. It was the hope of God's mercy, that the potential that they could experience mercy, this led them to a place of mourning over sin. Verses 7 and 8 go on to say that he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the degree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So the hope of God's mercy will lead us to mourn. Second, we see the hope of God's mercy will lead us to fast. You know, oftentimes in the ancient Near East, national fasts were often called uh, as expressions of grief and lament. And there's a really interesting detail we see here in verse 8 that shows us even the animals were brought into the fast. And, and this just shows the desperation of the people to be reconciled to God. You know, as food and water was withheld from livestock, oftentimes ancient Near East, they would take the animals as they died and then offer them as sacrifices. So this could have massive ramifications on their livelihood. And this was a day for the whole nation of national mourning. You know, just think about this. The timing here is good because we're going into the weekend where uh, next week we'll observe Memorial Day. And Memorial Day is a day of memory. It's a day of remembrance. But what are we remembering? We, we are remembering those who paid the ultimate price for those who lost their lives in service to our nation. So we honor them, but it's also a day of mourning. I'm cognizant of the fact here, especially in a military community, that, that many of you have friends, you have family who, who lost their lives in service to our nation. So yes, while we remember and while we honor, it's also a day that we mourn. We'll, we'll fly the flags at half staff and we will recognize that it's good and right and true uh, to mourn together as a nation to remember those who lost their lives. So the people of Nineveh, they became aware of their sin and it leads them into a national fast. It's, it's a, a period of mourning. It's an expression of mourning and desperation for God. Uh, in his famous book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster uh, t says that fasting ultimately reveals the things that control us. Right, like we're, we're so funny the way that we do this. We like to think of ourselves as so confident, so strong, uh, so, so in control of things. And then what happens to us when we skip two meals? hangry, right? I mean, we will lose it. And we learn real quick just how strong we actually are. And, and, and fasting, whether it's, it's fasting from food, fasting from water, fasting from some other activity that we are somehow dependent on, what fasting does is it reveals the things that control us. 
And in fasting, what we're doing is we're attaching physical impulses with spiritual desires. So in the same way that we are dependent on physical food to sustain our physical lives, we're reminded as we fast that these things cannot save us from spiritual death. None of these things is sufficient to save. We are wholly dependent upon God, not just for our salvation. We are wholly dependent on God for our ongoing sanctification. The process day in and day out of being conformed into the image of Christ. We are wholly dependent on God for our future glorification and the eternity to come. In fasting, what the Ninevites are expressing to God is, we hunger for you. We ache for you. We long for you. We thirst for you. We desire you. We are desperate for you. Fasting is an act of desperation. We're attaching physical desires with spiritual impulses. As we feel the hunger in our stomachs, we're praying, Lord, I hunger for you in my soul. As we feel thirst in our bodies, we're saying, Lord, I thirst after the fountain of living water. You know, just this past week, uh, it was Monday morning, our elder team was, was meeting together, and we um, spent the first 30, 40 minutes of our meeting just, uh, just in a time of sharing joys and sorrows. Um, things that we could celebrate together as, as brothers in Christ and then burdens that we can carry with one another. And so um, we just had at this, this particular meeting a few brothers on our elder team who just uh, shared some especially weighty things. Um, some things, that the challenges they were working through with, with your family or, or with job, vocation. And, and we were just especially burdened for, for these brothers in particular. And so uh, what we committed to as an elder team was for the first half of the day on Tuesday, we were going to fast and pray for one another. So the way it went for me is, you know, I'm, I'm traveling and uh, on, on Tuesday I was traveling to Nashville and as I'm driving, as I'm flying, I feel the hunger pain in my stomach and, and that's reminding me, Lord, but will you satisfy this brother today by your presence? Will you satisfy him today in your word? Would he hunger for you? Would he thirst for you? And in a roundabout way, as we're carrying each other's burdens, what we are asking the Lord for is to show them mercy. God, have mercy on this brother. Have mercy on his family. Have mercy on this situation with the job. Make your mercy known in their lives. The aim of fasting is what's expressed by David in Psalm 63, which we read as our call to worship this morning. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So, So you see what's happening here? Our fasting from food is a feasting on God. You know, if you are fasting for a spiritual purpose, if you skip breakfast, that doesn't mean you didn't eat. I mean, what we see through fasting is we abstain from physical bread, but we do it to feast on the bread of life. We might abstain from physical drink, but we gulp from the fountain of living water. We attach physical impulses to spiritual desires as an expression of our dependence on the Lord, and we replace physical activity with spiritual activity. The people are coming to God in hope of his mercy, and they're desperate and they express their desperation through the practice of fasting. Second half of verse eight, he says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let them call out mightily to God. So the hope of God's mercy will lead us to mourn and to fast. Third, we see the hope of God's mercy will lead us to pray. Again, understand this is the other side of that coin when it comes to fasting. This is important for us to understand. Fasting is not just abstaining from food. Just, you just don't eat, you'll just be hungry, right? Like they're just going on a diet, which diets are good too. But, but fasting, it's not just abstaining with, with food. We're replacing the abstinence from food with some sort of spiritual activity. So the king had issued the decree. The, the decree, nobody eats, nobody drink. Instead, he calls out, they're gonna replace their eating and their drinking with this activity. Let them call out mightily to God. 
Again, when Jonah had come preaching back at the beginning of chapter 3, yet 40 days and Nineveh will perish, the holding out of 40 days was for the people the possibility that maybe the Lord would relent from the wrath that they were due to experience. God had shown mercy to Jonah, so they're thinking, well, perhaps God will show mercy to us as well. That they had pretty good reason to believe. Maybe God will show us mercy. As he has shown Jonah mercy, maybe he will show mercy to our nation as well. The hope of God's mercy led them to pray. You know, I don't know about you, um, but when I have fallen into sin, and especially when I have fallen into repeated sin, it's something I've done before and and maybe promised the Lord, I'm sorry for this and I'll never do this again. It's not just when we sin, but especially when we fall into repeated sin. I, I don't know about you, but in that moment, about the very last thing I want to do is pray. There's, there's just this feeling of, of guilt and shame, like I, I have disappointed my dad. I've let him down, and he's especially disappointed in me. Probably doesn't love me a whole lot right now, probably not very proud of me. And, and man, this will just drive us further and further and further away from prayer. But I mean, here's what's amazing for us today. You and I have the benefit of knowledge that the Ninevites did not yet have. This is what's amazing for us today. You know, when we talk about the hope of God's mercy, we need to make sure we talk about the word hope as if the New Testament has been written. Sometimes we make this mistake as followers of Jesus. Like, we will read and interpret the Old Testament as if Jesus has not come. And, and so you and I have the benefit of knowledge that the Ninevites did not yet have. When we talk about the hope of God's mercy, we got to qualify this term hope. As followers of Christ, we do not hope with what you could call doubtful optimism. This isn't how we hope. So that means we don't use the word hope in the way you might say, I hope it rains today. By the way, I really do hope it rains today. Like we need, we need some rain. We don't use the word hope in the way you might say, I hope my stocks don't lose any more value. We don't use the word hope in the way you say, I hope this conversation with my boss goes well. When we talk in this way, we're simultaneously expressing the possibility that things might not go well. So when we talk about hope as followers of Christ, our hope as Christians is not a hope of doubtful optimism. Our hope is a hope of confident expectation. Christian hope is confidence in unchanging reality. So it's not, I hope it rains today. We wake up saying things like, I hope water is still wet. That's unchanging reality. Our hope is the type of hope that says, I hope fire is still hot. Our type of hope is the hope that says, I hope gas prices continue to increase because that's a certainty right now. That just keeps happening. Like, so, so we do not hope with doubtful optimism. It is confident expectation by God's grace in the name of Jesus Christ, this is going to happen. And we can do this because scripture gives us plenty of reason to show that Christians should hope with certainty. One of uh, the places that we see this is in 1 John 1.9. I share this, recite this almost every single week when we come to the table for communion. We can be certain that we will experience the mercy of God because God has promised through his son, Jesus Christ, that we can experience his mercy. And that if we come to him in repentance, we will experience his mercy. So we don't come to him in confession doubtfully optimistic. No, we come to him with confident expectation. This is 1 John 1, 9. It's conditional on our repentance. It says, if we confess our sins. Who is he, church? He's faithful and he's what? He's just. He is faithful and he's just to do what? To forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Ninevites had good reason to believe God would show them mercy. He had sent Jonah to them. And not only had he sent Jonah to warn them of coming judgment as an act of mercy, God had shown, jo- had shown Jonah himself mercy when he rebelled against the Lord. It was the gracious gift of bad news. The Lord had sent the prophet to warn them of the coming judgment if they didn't turn and, and repent. So, so follow me here for just a moment, church. If the Ninevites had hope for mercy at the coming of Jonah, how much more should you and I have hope for mercy at the coming of Jesus? If they had good reason to believe that God would show them mercy because of Jonah, how much more reason do you and I have to believe because the Lord has sent us Jesus Christ? Even in the deepest sin, we can run to him in prayer, confidently expecting him to forgive and cleanse because he's faithful and he's just. That's what we see on display in verses 8 through 10. King had said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And he says, who knows? This is a little bit of doubtful optimism, but this is very much the desire. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10 shows us, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So the hope of God's mercy will lead us to mourn. It will lead us to fast. It will lead us to pray. Fourth and finally, we see the hope of God's mercy will lead us to act. It will lead us to act. This word repent, in in its simplest form, what's the word repent mean? It means to turn. The word repent is in its simplest form. It just means to turn. That's what's happening in verse 8. He's calling them to turn. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So repentance is a turn, but more specifically, it is a turn from specific sins. Let everyone turn from the violence that is in his hand. Turn from evil. Turn from violence. So the sin that was specific to Nineveh was violence. And man, this has plenty of application for us in our modern day. In our own culture right now, like you do not have to look far to see our commitment to bloodlust and to violence. And I've seen it really on, on two opposite ends of the extreme over the last couple of weeks. So, so man, for, for two weeks, uh, I, I have, without apology, challenged our church to be actively praying that Roe would in fact be overturned. As followers of Jesus, that this shouldn't even be, everybody gets tense when we talk about it. As followers of Christ, friends, this should not be confusing. The only reason it's become confusing for most of us is because our consciences have been so seared by a wicked and unbelieving world. Every human being from womb to tomb, scripture clearly shows us as being made and formed in the image of God. And we have to work, we have to labor to to protect both the sanctity of human life in the womb and the dignity of human life outside of the womb. And you want to see the wickedness of a lost and broken world on display? Look at the weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth that's coming from people who are realizing it may no longer be legal to take the lives of children. Like that's the fullness of our display. Like that's what they're upset about, is, is no longer being able to freely end the lives of children. And and so many of us, man, our consciences have been so seared by this because it's become so acceptable. But again, we don't just uphold the the sanctity of life in the womb. We uphold the dignity of human life outside of the womb. So last week, this is what you see in Buffalo. An 18-year-old man walks into a grocery store and he ends the lives of 10 people who were just out shopping. And what was his motivation? 
didn't like the color of their skin. Church, this is what it means to be holistically pro-life, is that we are equally grieved about violence inside the womb and outside of the womb. If we're willing to be honest about both of these, these are both racially motivated crimes as well, if you'll honestly study the roots. Here's a guy who is driven by, once again, just a, a ridiculous conspiracy theory. We, we act like these things don't have consequences. They do. Driven by a conspiracy theory and, and satanic white supremacist ideology. As followers of Jesus, this should not be confusing. That we grieve over both of these things. That we grieve over acts of violence. That we grieve when the image of God in man is destroyed and desecrated. But, but here, here's what absolutely crushes and grieves my heart is, is right now we're living in a culture, and I fear many of us has been shaped by this. You're going to be upset about one of those or the other, depending on which side of the political spectrum you're on. Some of us followers of Jesus, we were terrified to say one word negative about abortion because we don't want to be labeled patriarchal fundamentalists. Some of you, man, I fear you are terrified to say one single word about racial injustice because you are, you are terrified to your core of, of being labeled a social justice warrior or woke. And hear my heart on this today, church. As long as you live enslaved to the opinions of man, it's going to be very difficult for you to enter into genuine repentance. As long as what you will and won't be concerned about is shaped more by the surrounding world and culture and less by the word of God, the more you live enslaved to the opinions of man and what people will think about you when you speak truth, the more difficult it's going to be for you to experience true repentance. Because true repentance is grief over sin. It's the recognition of our wickedness and our rebellion in light of God's word and in light of the words of a holy God. J.I. Packer said that repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life. It's a change of mind issuing in a change of life. It's a turning. It's a turning away from something that, that is evil to turn to that which is good. It's, it's turning away from our sins and it's turning toward Jesus Christ to lay hold of the perfect righteousness that he's made available to us. And, you know, I've tried to just man, hammer this in for us week in and week out. This has been a key theme for us going back to the book of Hosea at the beginning of the year. The feeling of conviction is not the same as the action of repentance. Feeling sorry for our sin is not the same as, as being broken and grieving over our sin. Being sorry we got caught is not the same as repenting because we know that we've sinned in the eyes of a holy God. So practically, like this is what this means for us as, as followers of Jesus. Like we turned a blind eye to violence and hate. Repentance is not just feeling sorry about that. Repentance is, is, is not just, just continuing to tolerate that. It's speaking out against it and it's resolving to seek change. Followers of Jesus, so, so many of our behaviors, so many of our attitudes, so much of our mentality has, has been so shaped by the broken world that we live in instead of the word of God. And I think we just need to hear this clearly this morning. Listen, you're, you're indulging, friends, a porn habit. You're, you're, you're flirting with that coworker and, man, just setting yourself up for disaster. You're, as a follower of Jesus, you're living, you're sleeping with people you're not married to. Listen, this grieves the heart of God. This is sin in the eyes of God. And repentance is not just feeling sorry about that. It's stopping these things and turning to Jesus Christ. 
If, if you're a hateful person, you're constantly in gossip and slander. Like, like repentance isn't just feeling bad about that for 30 minutes this morning and then jumping right back into it tomorrow. If we've been prayerless, if we've been apathetic in our approach to God's word, if we've been apathetic in our commitment to the church, repentance is not just feeling sorry about that. It's turning away from our sin and turning to the perfect righteousness that's available to us in Jesus. We stop. Repentance is not just being sorry for sin, it's ceasing our sin. It's by God's grace and with the help of his spirit, we don't just feel sorry. We turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus Christ. And the Lord continues to deliver us today, deliver to us today the gracious gift of of bad news, the warning that God's judgment is going to come to those who persist in sin and reject his word. But church, here is his mercy. The wrath and the punishment that we deserve because of sin was instead poured out on Jesus Christ. And God's judgment against sin will be turned away from all who turn to him in repentance and faith. We see the actions of the Ninevites. They turned from their sins. And this is verse 10. It says, The Lord saw them turn from their sin and relented of the disaster he had pronounced against them. He showed them mercy. He showed them mercy because our God does not just desire to show mercy. Our God delights in showing mercy. Sending Jonah was the mercy. The warning of judgment was the mercy. The forbearance of his wrath was the mercy. And that remains his mercy for us today. The the warning of coming judgment against sin, that is his mercy. That is his kindness. That is his compassion. The forbearance of his wrath in the here and now, not to be experienced of the eternity to come, like that, that is his mercy, that he's withholding that from us, what we deserve because of sin. And so today he gives us the kind invitation to turn and to repent, to come to him with the promise that if we will turn away from our sin, he will turn his judgment away from us. I, I love this about this particular passage, just like that in verse 10, just like that. At their repentance, the judge became their father. He's satisfied with this. You know, we don't have full time to get into this this morning, but it can be a little bit of a controversial passage. Some of your translations will say, actually, that the Lord repented of his wrath. Not repented in the sense that God had sinned and needed to turn, because again, the word repent just means to turn. But this is what the Lord had promised. We saw this last week through the prophet Jeremiah, that if if any nation fell into sin, that if they would turn from their sin, that he would pour out his mercy on them. This is what God is doing. He delights to show mercy to those who repent of their sins. The judge became their father. And that's what's available to us today. Is it repenting of our sin, turning from our sin, turning to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ? We will be declared innocent, justified in his sight, and adopted into his family as his sons and his daughters. You know, over the last few weeks, um, I've spent a good bit of time with pastor friends, new and old. Some of this is uh, just partnerships we've had as a church for several years. Some of these are pastoral relationships that go a long way back for me. Some of this is through the uh, partnership we have with the Acts 29 network. And um, so, so a lot of friends, both, both new and, and old. And we've spent a lot of time the last few weeks uh, in prayer for each other and, and sharing burdens that we're carrying, challenges that we're experiencing. And across significant time with these brothers, we're talking about three or four very different groups. Some of these guys know each other, some of us don't. Across all these different groups, I found four consistent threads uh, in all of our conversations. First two threads that that are consistent kind of go hand in hand. Uh, We both expressed, or all of us expressed in every one of these groups, we we all expressed, especially over the the events of the last couple of years, 
Uh, Two things that really go hand in hand. Number one, pastors, we are all very weary, just fully transparent. We're worn out. Uh, last two years, like we, we have felt the weight of that and the challenges and the experiences, the constant shifting and change. Our church family is going through a lot right now uh, in terms of transition and, and, and exciting things that are coming up, but we're all pretty well worn out. Uh, but what goes hand in hand with that, we have also all learned that Jesus is still very, very good. Uh, he has proven himself strong in our weakness at every single turn, and, and by his grace, uh, we continue to persevere. The, the third common thread in our conversation is that we are very grieved by division within the body of Christ. We are so grieved where it seems culturally the church at large, we, we in so many ways, man, we, we are divided across superficial things. We are divided over non-essential things. You know, it, it grieves me that like you can have a full-time job in the blogosphere. You, you can make a full, have a full-time job and have a full-time living out of slandering other faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. You hear one thing in a, in, a, in a clip they say on a 45 second YouTube video and suddenly you're an expert on their ministry and you can pronounce them as unfaithful. Friend, that's a dangerous, dangerous game. That, that is a dangerous, dangerous game. I think oftentimes we need to be reminded we are gonna give account before God for every idle word that we speak. And it just grieves me to my core how, how divided the body of Christ is at times over non-essential or superficial matters. But, but in spite of all of this, this was the fourth common thread that we, we firmly believed, all of us. In spite of the hatred, in spite of the animosity, in spite of the vision, we firmly believe, church, revival will come. It's going to come. It's going to come. What we believe in spite of everything we're experiencing right now, and this is my desire for, for this body of believers, because I don't control what other pastors are doing at their churches. I don't control what that famous person said on the internet. I control none of that. And, and biblically, none of us have been given permission to police all of that up. I get to focus right here. That I get to make an effect and change right here, this, this body of believers. So this is what I hope, if nothing else, for Cross Community Church. I can't, can't hope this for any other church except ours is that when the day comes and the Lord breaks through to his people, I I want us right there ready to go on the front line, eager to enter into what he's doing, eager to enter into the spiritual awakening that that could come to us. But here's what I know, and here's what we remember as we look this morning at Jonah chapter 3. There will be absolutely no revival until there has been repentance. As we study the history of God's people in his word, as you study church history through the ages, God does not revive a people who refuse to repent. He does not revive a people who refuse to repent. We, we, we call on the example of the Ninevites this morning as a powerful example. They did not just tear their garments, they tore open their hearts. And this is an important word for us today because, because we're living in a, in a cultural moment right now where we're really good at performative religion. Like, we're really good at looking the part. We're really good at, at making a statement on social media, posting the right picture, making it look like we're really holy. And here's the warning from this passage this morning. Man, we could conceivably put on a good show morning. We could conceivably put on a good show fasting. We could conceivably put a good show praying until we tear open our hearts. True repentance has not come. But here's the promise that we find from Jonah chapter 3. If we will meet the Lord in our mourning, he will come to us in his mercy. Because our God is a God of mercy, and he doesn't just desire to show mercy, he delights to show mercy. So will you bow your heads with me as we close our time together this morning? 
I want to come back to the question I asked earlier. We're going to move right into our time of, of confession, repentance, as we prepare our hearts to come to the table for the Lord's Supper. And I just want to ask you, when it comes to dealing with sin, do you find yourself proactively repentant or you just find yourself reactively sorry? Do we genuinely grieve over our sin and the presence of sin in our lives or do we only deal with it when we get caught? Brother, sister, I just really encourage you, but with the help of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, to, to invite him to illuminate the darkness of your heart, to shine the light of the gospel in your life and be honest with yourself today. Are there sins, are there habits, are there actions, are there behaviors, are there mannerisms, are there attitudes, are there motives that are in your heart, in your life, that if you're just being honest, you're not gonna deal with it unless you get caught. And, and as difficult of a work as that is to deal honestly with the sin in our hearts, we have been given the promise of mercy. We have been given 1 John 1, 9 to remind us if you will confess your sins, if you will declare bankruptcy before your heavenly father, acknowledge your spiritual poverty, if you will do this, difficult as it is, if you will do this, he is faithful, he is just, he is eager to forgive and to cleanse and to heal. He not just desires to show you mercy, he will delight in showing you mercy. He's poured it out for you through his son, Jesus Christ. So Father, will you now search our hearts? Will you reveal to us habits, words, thoughts, actions, motives, desires that are, that are just not of you. Help us to deal honestly with the sin that's in our hearts and help us to bring it to you boldly, confident that you will heal and you will forgive because you're faithful and you're just. We rejoice in the mercy that has been poured out to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you that at the cross, the wrath that we deserve was poured out instead upon him. And that you in turn have poured out his righteousness on us. Help us to walk boldly. Help us to walk freely. Help us to walk confidently in that righteousness today. As we come to this table this morning to confess and to repent, to reflect, to give you praise and glory. Father, we are people so unworthy, so undeserving, and we ask that you would take our feeble offering today of praise. Let it be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you this day. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the mercy that's been poured out to us. We ask all these things in his precious and holy name. Everyone said, amen, amen.